Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? <sighs> the layoffs that have just happened a couple of weeks ago, as you are hearing it. But as we are recording it, the layoffs that just happened at Twitter. And what that's doing to both the employees and the culture of the organization. and. So I was reading an article about how it used to be that the culture of the organization was really, we are all people who care about getting the word of people and actual truth out there and having vibrant dialogue. That's what we all really care about. And now, literally overnight, half the staff is gone. And people who are remaining are so terrified for their jobs that they are now sleeping in the office. And people in the organization, inside the organization, are saying, we don't know if the public is ever going to trust Twitter again. And the organizational culture of the place that we have cared about for so long has been completely destroyed. And so it's really gotten me thinking about this intersectionality between employee experience, customer experience, and organizational culture, which brings me right to our guest for today. So I am so excited to introduce you to Steve Pappas. I got to know Steve, gosh, two years ago, maybe? Yeah, about that. Yeah, time in the time of COVID. But yeah, about two years ago, because we were looking at exactly this intersection between employee experience and employee engagement and customer experience. And Steve has been called the CX. So that's the customer experience. The CX connoisseur has spent many years in his relentless pursuit of building great customer experiences. I'm thrilled to welcome you to the show, Steve. Thanks, Janine. I have been looking forward to this. I can't even tell you how long. Yay. I have had it on my calendar and I said, oh, I can't wait to talk to Janine. <laughs> you know how you meet those people along the way and you just feel like, man, I don't know where you've been all my life, and I'm 100% sure you're going to stay in it. And you just have that immediate, like, I feel like we've been friends since we were seven kind of connection. Yep. That's yep. exactly the way it feels. It feels that the moment we started talking for the very first time, I said, wow, that 
just felt so natural. Yeah. It felt like we were neighbors or something like uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Ah, juicy experiences. I love it. Okay. So I'm going to start the way that I often start, which is, Steve, what is something that you have become aware of that people are not paying enough attention to, either consciously or unconsciously? And what's the cost of that? Mm. Wow, that's a great question. There's an awful lot of things that I've become more aware of recently. I'm becoming more aware that people are changing, especially through the pandemic. People have changed the way they look at things. And what's also changed is their expectations of the way things should be. Now, whether that's rooted in reality or not, sometimes... (laughs) Right. It's just the sheer fact that much of society's way of looking at things has been changing. For a while there during the pandemic, people seem to have a longer fuse. But now as we've started emerging, their fuses are getting much shorter. The response time that they're expecting is yesterday. And that flows through to a lot of different things from how they drive on the road, how much faster they're driving than it used to be, how many more risks they're willing to take, how they're gambling with things, because they've got to get somewhere. It's almost like the pandemic caused more perpetual motion to be part of everyone, especially in this country, become part of everyone's day-to-day routine, and they don't even know it's happening. It's just, it's been an evolution that's happening around them. It's kind of like being on that hamster wheel and they can't get off it. They're not stopping long enough to look at the bigger picture. The blinders are on and they're just moving full steam ahead, forward. And if you're in their way, they're just going through you or around you. Yeah, or over you. Yeah, I mean, I had the opportunity to give a keynote talk for a group of folks in San Diego, group of organizational leaders for the county of San Diego about two weeks ago. And we got into this conversation about how the iPhone has only been around since 2007. This thing that has become so ubiquitous for us. And many of us, I mean, obviously we are all aging and there is this phenomenon that happens as we age, that it feels like time is speeding up. And it also feels like time is speeding up in part because of this phenomenon that you were just pointing to. And for many of us, we wake up and the first thing that we do in the morning is we check our phone. And like the pace of life has changed dramatically. And I think one of the things that's really interesting and important for people like you and me who are focused on how to make organizations be the best that they can be by focusing on the employees on my side and by focusing on the customer experience on your side, it has changed what employees expect. It has changed what customers expect. And it has fundamentally changed the concept of what we expect from leaders, what we expect from managers, the way that people expect to be treated and really demand to be treated. I mean, something as you and I were coming up in the world of work and we were talking before we started recording, Steve and I are 
almost the same age. He maintains that I'm a mere child, although I am a whole three years younger than him. So like, yeah. And when we were coming up in the world of work, you just put your head down and you dealt with whatever nonsense was happening from your boss or from the organization. And we were dealt a good hand or a bad hand. And we just played that hand. And now in just two more years, two and a half more years, 75% of the workforce will be millennials and the Gen Zs who are coming up after them. The oldest millennials are right now 41 years old. So these are not children anymore. And they are willing to leave in a way that we never were. Our generations never were. And the generations that came after us were never willing to just walk out the door if we weren't being treated the way that really humans should be treated. And so their intolerance for toxic environments or even just for bad management is creating a sea change in the way that organizations need to look at leadership. And I believe that the same is true for customer experience, in part because of that impatience that you were just pointing to. So what do you think of all that? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Let's start with the pace. When you talked about the pace of life is moving at such a ferocious pace now, the cost is we are crashing. I don't know if there's anyone over the age of 35 that hasn't complained about exhaustion and fatigue because what's happening is their brains are being occupied so much so by the digital realm in one shape or another. They are getting tons of input in the course of a day that don't allow them to ever come up for air. And what's happening is their brains are getting tired earlier in the day. I don't think they're realizing what the long-term cost is of all of this, that we require so much input. We want to stay in perpetual motion. There's something happening all the time. And if we're not getting that level of input all the time, we're bored or we think something's wrong, right? And that's not the case. The case is that we need to get back to balance somehow. And the balance doesn't mean you're throwing away your smartphone and you're throwing away everything else. But the balance means how do you stop and take a minute for yourself in the course of a day? Now, when you talked about the workforce, ones that are willing to just say no and I'm out of here, that's probably the extreme side of how do I deal with this? It may be kind of an atmosphere that they could have dealt with. It could be something that would be fine. But when you layer all of the other things of life, and then if they're new parents or they're recent parents or they have school level kids and they were doing the homeschooling and dealing with all of the other pressures that they went through in the course of the pandemic, what happens is you're creating this layered on effect. And at some point, the human mind says, something's got to give. They try to not take it out on the people around them as much as they possibly can. They try not to take it out on themselves by either drinking more or anything else. They're probably not looking for healthy solutions like working out or learning a new hobby or something like that. So where does it come out? It comes out in the workplace. And because the workplace is probably the largest 
chunk of time and the largest amount of effort and energy spent with others in work that it comes out in that point, which means the employee engagement levels start plummeting. And how can an unengaged employee ever create a great customer experience? They're thinking, well, I'm thinking of leaving. I'm not happy. I don't like this environment. Oh, the customer has a problem? Oh, I'll let Janine handle it. <laughs> Good luck with that customer. Right. Then the customer experience goes down too. The other side of it was the pandemic resulted in a lot of change just in general. And we have dealt with change in almost every form we could possibly get thrown at us. In a very compressed time frame. And none of us were prepared how to deal with it. I mean, nobody ever really dealt, nobody of any experience level came out during the pandemic and said, you're probably feeling all of these things. Here's what you need to do to get through it. We didn't get that. Still be wearing masks. Oh, we're still <laughs> going to be doing this. Oh, you got to get your booster shot. It was more prescriptive than it was therapeutic for us. As I was managing people during the pandemic, somebody asked me this question recently, and they said, what did you worry about? What kept you up at night? And my answer was, I cared more about how my employees and their families were faring than I did my own family and my own situation, because I was dealing with a lot. We were being acquired at the time. So I was working almost two full-time jobs during that. I worried about what they were doing. I could still point to and pull out of these cabinets here, all the trivia games I had bought, everything I could find to do trivia nights. We did all kinds of things for every holiday. We were making gingerbread houses together on Zoom. We had Halloween parties with their kids on Zoom. We took old-time radio programs Everybody got their own part. And then on Zoom, we all did Flash Gordon from the 1930s. Oh, I love that. I'll tell you, we had a great Ming the Merciless and we had a great <laughs> Flash Gordon. And then I had a friend of mine edit it all together. And it was like a bad karate movie where the lips didn't quite sink. We roared. We absolutely roared when we did the unveiling with the red carpet. Well, the virtual red carpet and everything. It was things like that. It was from a management perspective, how much do you pain for your employees and how they're feeling and caring about them, their career, their career opportunities, their progression, their happiness, making sure that they're okay different times? How much as a manager do you care about that? Or during the pandemic, and some people relate to this, or were you worried you weren't getting the productivity out of people? Were you worried that, oh my God, I think I feel, I don't have any statistics, but I feel like the productivity is at a, between 40 and 50% right now, right? That's the old school. That's the traditional manager. That's the manager that had his head down, didn't say anything and grew into a management position. And during the pandemic was probably pretty untrusting for his reports, thus the people that you talked about that are willing to leave, they were probably, to some degree, under that type of manager, not more of a new style manager that said, hey, let's have fun. On Friday, we're going to get together at four o'clock. We'll knock off an hour early. Bring your favorite beverage. We're going to do some games. We're going to have some fun. Let's blow off some steam. Let's not talk business, right? And then get together with them. I mean, we did virtual walks 
lunchtime, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Just bring your phone on Zoom. You can either point it to where you're walking and people could see it, or you just turn it off and we just chat. I mean, it's simple stuff to do. It is simple stuff to do. And yet so many managers and so many organizational leaders are caught in this place where they feel like I don't have enough time to worry about that. I don't have enough time to worry about my people. I have too many other things to do. Or I am only focused on the business metrics that we've got to hit our EBITDA for the month or the quarter or the whatever. And I can't figure out how to worry about my people like the and and these are grown people. They should be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, deal with their stuff. I'm not their parent. Their appreciation that they get from me is a paycheck. And like, get on with your bad selves, people. Like we have a whole school of people out there who, as I'm going through that, may think, yeah, that's right. That's how I think about stuff. And even though you and I are in one of the older generations in the workforce, we have a different perspective on stuff. So when you hear those kinds of pushback from people, I don't have time to worry about it. I have other things I need to do. I am focused on the bottom line. How am I supposed to make time to do these things? And like, that's not my job. My job is not to care about these people personally. Like, this is work, and they're supposed to come in here and do work. How do you respond to that? Well, it's really an interesting issue because it's such a dichotomy between the two. It's not like there's versions in the middle of that. Either they are a traditionalist manager that was brought up with that more don't be friends with your employees, or it was more of the touchy-feely approach that, hey, you can be work friends, but they just have to know the line of when things need to be get done, it has to just get done. I think that if the traditionalists really looked at it from a metrics perspective, they could have changed their thinking and said, is the work getting done? If the work's getting done in 33 hours a week instead of 40, does it really matter? Should you really be that untrusting and keeping your thumb on top of people. But so just look at it that, okay, there's X amount of work that needs to be done. Was it getting done? Now, I found that there was actually more productivity. People were starting earlier in the day. They were shutting down later in the day. And I was more concerned they were burning out. And you would be right. So I'm working with an organization right now. And in designing their sort of organizational culture overhaul, I looked at how many books have come out on burnout in the last year and a half. I mean, there are shelves and shelves and pages and pages and pages of books that have come out on burnout because of exactly that phenomenon. We've been dealing with so much during the pandemic in our own lives and managing ourselves. And the last thing that the human brain wants to deal with is uncertainty. We are wired to pick a fight, 
to force a situation in order to get to certainty, even if the outcome is what we don't want. And so the human brain hates uncertainty. And for the last two years, all we've been doing, two and a half years, all we've been doing is swimming in a sea of uncertainty. And so we're dealing at a neurobiological level, we're dealing with so much stress. And then folks are were having to teach their kids at home. People are dealing with aging parents and then all of the stress of working from home or not working from home. And now the transition, how much are we continuing to work from home? And if our organization is mandating everybody back in the office, like Twitter is doing, what's that doing to the organization? And so people are physically, biologically burning out. And so what are the things that you have found? Part of my love for you, my love for you is rooted in many things, but part of what my love for you is rooted in is that you have this, what feels to me like natural intrinsic understanding of when we do well by our people, our employees, our customers will become loyal and our organization will thrive. There's a direct through line in that story. And when we break it at any point in that story, the end outcome is less healthy organizational bottom top lines. So do you know, where does that understanding come from? Like, did you have a seminal experience or was it just one of these things that over the course of your career and time you realized? There's a couple of things. One, I had six of my own startups and my last one was a charter airline who starts their own charter airline. I don't. <laughs> but my approach, I don't want to take credit for because I was born into a family of entrepreneurs and the family of entrepreneurs were very old school in the way they dealt with customer experience, but it translated to employee experience in my head. So my dad died when I just before I turned five. And so the male figure in my family was an uncle, very close with my dad, who made a promise to my dad that he would watch over me. He had 17 different businesses at one time. He had concession stands at racetracks and fairs and carnivals and amusement parks and all kinds of things. And on Saturdays, we used to take off together and we would go mystery shop them. I didn't even know what that meant. I just knew I was probably going to get a funnel cake and a Coke. But what he would do was he would be writing in this little notebook and he used to have the tiniest little pencil that he used a knife to sharpen behind his ear. And he always had the paper boy hat on. So at the end of the time, we'd be getting back in the car. And sometimes it was a five or six hour ride too. We get back in the car and you're too young to remember, but he had a 1966 Ford Galaxy 500. It was a boat <laughs> and on the back deck, under the back window on the back deck. <laughs> was such a big area. I used to love like lying down out there and I would take that notebook from him and I would read and I would say, Uncle Nick, what does it mean he didn't tip his hat? Uncle Nick, what does it mean that he didn't greet them properly? Uncle Nick, what does it mean that he didn't give them a replacement on something that was wrong? And he would explain these things to me. I didn't know what I was learning. 
Come to find out later on, I was learning his old world, shake someone's hand, look them in the eye and deliver more than they expected, right? I was learning that. But in my mind, that translated to my employees too. So as I started in business, I started thinking the same way about my employees as I did my customers. So you fast forward a bit and even right through the pandemic, and I used to have these five, I would say there were five tenants that I always kind of lived by. I mean, I'll give them to you, right? Pretty easy. When there's a problem, take the problem to the people that solve the problem, the doers. Don't sit in your office and think you're going to solve the problem for someone three layers down in the organization that has to do it. So take the problem to the doers and have them become part of the solution. The second one was own your mistakes. No matter what went wrong, own it and talk about it and make it right. The third one is be transparent. Treat your employees as your partner. I mean, you'll tell your partner what's going on. You'll tell them when financial stuff is rough. You'll tell them when something's coming down the pike. You'll tell them this. There may be something that some things that you have to hold back, but be transparent on how's the business really doing. Make them part of the solution and the success so that you celebrate. You celebrate every customer. You celebrate every employee, right? The fourth one is teach them how to be friction hunters. So have them look for where the friction is, not just the friction with customers, the friction with their process, the friction with how they need to do their job. And it might be another person, it may be a technology, or it may just be you didn't look at that process carefully enough and there's a better way. And then ultimately teach them to be value creators, right? How can they continuously be creating value? Not just value for the customer, value for themselves too. I've always kind of stuck by those five tenants, and there's probably more, but those are the ones that always stick out to me that take the problem to the doers. Don't dictate to them and prescribe, hey, you're just going to do this from now on. No, talk to them. What do you think about this? Can we come up with a better way, right? Own the mistakes, be very transparent with them because they're in it with you, right? And then teach them to be friction hunters and how to continuously create value. I love that. Depending upon the personalities and the organization, any of those can trip us up. And the one that I think is most likely to trip us up as just human beings is owning our mistakes. And I continuously work with myself and with the organizations that I get to work with professionally on the challenge of owning our mistakes, why that's so hard for human beings, and what gets transformed when we do it. I mean, the reality is, so I once, and I tell this story often, I once made a horrible mistake. I was working for a Fortune 200 company and I came in Monday morning and I realized I'd forgotten to do something on that Friday. And it was such a big thing. It could have ended up costing the company $20 million. 
So it wasn't like, whoopsie, like this was a I could get fired moment. And so I think my brain did that thing that humans do when we get thrown into, oh, shit and panic. I went down crazy rabbit holes of like, how can I cover this up and what am I going to do? And then I realized like, okay, actually, the only thing that I can do in this situation is go and tell my boss. And so I did. And the first thing I think I said, his name was Doug, was, Doug, I have massively screwed up and I am so sorry and I'm freaking out and I don't know what to do. And I owned it. And I also owned, like, (laughs) my brain has left my body. (laughs) I, I don't know how to fix this problem. And I am 100% sure because of the way that I owned it. And like all humans, he could be great and he could be not so great. And because of how I was owning it, he immediately got into the boat with me and started helping me paddle to a solution. And in the end, it all worked out fine. We didn't lose the business. We won the business. And that happened a decade ago. I remember it as though it were yesterday because it was one of those times when I probably could have figured out how to try and cover it up and cover my own butt and thrown somebody else under the bus. And instead, I made, quote unquote, the right choice. But part of my values are authenticity and honesty. And it's like, okay, (laughs) I can't throw all those out here in my $20 million moment. I get to be who I am and own what I did. And it transformed our relationship in some fundamental ways. When you're working with organizations in customer experience, and often when we're dealing with customers, they are interacting with us because there's been a mistake made. And so how do you help people get over our natural aversion to owning something and fixing it? That's an ingrained issue. We all have it. It's in all of us. It's drilled into us because we have this wall around us that we have to be right or we have to be on the money all the time. All the time. Perfect. And if we're seen that we make mistakes, we're seen as weak or that we're incompetent, or we will be seen as less than we are. It's the exact opposite. The reality is it's the exact opposite. The more astute person is the one that's aware that they're not perfect and that mistakes will happen and knows that the people around them will understand. The biggest problem is the speed, the speed of owning it, right? I just realized I made a mistake. It just came to my attention that something went wrong in the course of what I did, but I wanted to bring it to your attention immediately so that you fill in the blank, right? The key to owning it is the speed by which you own up to it. Not what you say afterwards, not what you do afterwards. It's the second you know You say, okay, who's affected? Let me talk to them immediately. Where's the impact of this going to be? And you quickly go into that mode. And that's not to save your butt. That's to save their butt. And they will appreciate it. And they'll love you even more for 
the fact that you cared more about them. Mistakes happen all the time in business, but the fact that you cared about their success and any impact it was going to be to them will change the relationship for the positive with them. And if you sit on it a day or two, guess what? You probably lost that client. You probably lost that relationship. But because you immediately pounced on it, they're going to come back to you. And this has happened to me every time I've done it. It's come back to me. Oh, thank you for telling me so quickly. We were able to make a change and we can do this. But thanks for getting to us right away. They start thanking you for being real. Now, I'm sure you'll get the occasional fly off the handle person. But I would tell you 98% of the time, the key to it is saying, okay, things happen. Mistakes get made, but how quickly I recognize it, how quickly I react to it, and how quickly I tell the people that will be impacted by it is the key to the successful future of that. Absolutely. Oh, Steve, I could keep talking with you forever. Oh, let's talk forever. Yeah, then. let's talk. Well, we are going to talk forever. We're just not going to continue this conversation <laughs> forever. Because <laughs> I'm trying to do, I was about to say a better job, but I'm trying to have the podcast be more consumable for more folks which means I'm trying to have it be happen over a shorter period of time. And as all of our listeners know, I get into conversations that I enjoy and then I just want to keep on chatting. Well, that so, was your mistake you made because you had me on and I right. can't talk short. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when I get with people that I enjoy, like you, Steve Pappas, I don't want to stop talking. So I don't want to end the conversation. And yeah, I am going to end the conversation. So before I do, is there anything where you were hoping we might touch on something or some place in particular that we haven't dug into enough that where you would love to leave our listeners? Well, I was kind of hoping that we would touch a little more on where on the employee engagement and the customer engagement intersects because that is really an area that is being missed by many companies today. And it's as if they're willing to give up some of these positive things. And they're worried about just getting the job done, just filling the seats in the restaurant. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. You could be a tradesperson and you don't call people back because you're too busy. The employee engagement and the customer engagement are hand in hand. I really wish people would understand that have businesses or that lead businesses understand that both are as important and both are necessary to success. If the employees are engaged and they have a great experience, they're not going to resign. They're not going to leave. They're not going to quietly quit. They're going to feel valued and they're going to feel heard and part of the organization's success. That smile in their voice, in their demeanor, transfers immediately to any customer they talk to, they interact with. Even the tone of their emails to customers will have that same smile in their voice. So my wish is for people to understand and to practice more on how to get a smile in their employee's voice 
that translates into a smile in their customer's voice. I love it. And that concept of a smile in our voice. I was originally trained a hundred years ago as a grassroots community organizer. And one of the things that we got to do was raise money. And sometimes we did that by making phone calls. And we were taught when you pick up the phone and start dialing, start smiling. And I grew up listening to National Public Radio, NPR, and the person who I always can hear the smile in his voice is Kai Rizdahl on Marketplace. And when he introduces the show and introduces himself, you can feel how happy he is to be there with you. And we are now doing so much of our work on Zoom, on the phone, through email. And I always encourage the folks that I'm working with to also be thinking about, like, is this a conversation that should happen on email? Or would this be more effective if it happened over the phone or over Zoom? Because we have gotten, I think, collectively into a place of what's going to be the fastest. And obviously, shooting out an email, shooting out a text, that's going to be the fastest mode of communication. But it's not always the most effective mode of communication. And so I love that idea of also bringing in the smile to it and making that connection between our employees and our end users, our customers. Exactly. And keep it personal. Keep it personal. If you're on a Zoom call, that smile translates very quickly and keep it personal. Talk about something. Talk about your children or talk about the dog that just barked. (laughs) Give it the 30 seconds to make the relationship a little bit more human. Right. A little bit warmer. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Steve, as always, it has been a joy and a delight. Thank you so much for sharing with us of your wisdom and your experience and your love of customers and our employees and the deep connection between those two. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And this to me is the most fun I can have in a day talking to you, Janine. Aw, thanks, doll. All right. I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Anxiety.